If you've already opened your Bibles to the book of Jude, then that means you know where we have been and where we're going. Uh, but I will ask you to put a finger there because we're first going to turn to the book of Second Peter and take note of a couple of verses. We began to see last week the extent to which Peter's letter in Second Peter can help us uh, understand uh, to an even more uh, to an even greater degree of clarity, what Jude is doing in the letter of Jude that we're working our way through uh, in these weeks. I want to draw your attention to uh, verse 10. Actually, we'll start reading in verse 9 in just a moment. Uh, verse 10 is where Peter starts what's going to parallel our passage in Jude this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 11 in Jude. Uh, but in 2 Peter 2.10, he writes something there that I want us to begin by having our attention drawn to. So let me start by reading in verse 9. God's Word says this. He has just given this series of if statements, right? If all of these things in history have happened like they did, and God judged them like He did, then here's what we know. Verse 9, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Now look at verse 10. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and, devi- and despise authority. It's the way the verse 10 starts that I would draw our attention to, that and especially. Why is such emphasis placed there? In the original language, they have a word, malan, which means more or greater. And then they have another word, Malista, that's the word he uses here. It means to an unusual degree, most of all. This is what Peter says here. God knows most of all, to a particularly great degree, how to judge these. Why are these two categories elevated like that? Have you thought about that? In a context here, both in Second Peter and in Jude, of rebellion... We find these two categories that he lifts up uh, to represent the boldest forms of rebellion. The first one that he mentioned is indulging in defiling passions. That's a pretty good description to fit what Romans 1 says is the manifestation of God's judgment on rebellion. Uh, Unbelievers are given over to such things, Paul tells us in Romans 1, as a result of ongoing rebellion. It is an apt description of the long-walked places on the path of rebellion. And despising authority is exactly what was held up for us in Psalm 2 that leads the raging, unbelieving nations to say, let us burst their bonds apart, speaking of the authority of God. Let us throw off their, their chains from us. This is what unbelief does. This is how unbelief regards the authority of God. And if you know Psalm 2, you know that what comes to those nations is not pretty. When these two descriptions characterize a person, it means that they are ripe for God's judgment. We'll be told at the end of Jude to act mercifully and lovingly toward those who are doubting, uh, those who are being tempted. But with these people, we're not told Uh, We're not spoken to in that way. We are told only to stand back from them, to separate ourselves from them so that we are not swept away with them in their condemnation. 
These are words of accusation. They're words of condemnation. And I'm starting there with what he says in 2 Peter 2.10 because it creates the right frame of thinking for our verses this morning in Jude. You can turn back now to Jude. Uh, Verses 8 through 11 is where we're going to spend our time. And you can think of our text this morning sort of in courtroom terms, really. He, He has been speaking especially in verse 4, in generalities. What, what are the fundamental truths that are going on and being challenged? Uh, he has now, we've gone through verses 5 through 7, where he's been giving historical examples, really setting up a precedent for what's going on with his hearers today. Uh, but now, as we come into our text, what's before us are not generalities or historical examples. What's before us now are really specific defendants in a courtroom. And so we're going to look through these verses in that, uh, in that way. Verses 8 and 9, we're going to hear charges leveled against them. Verse 10, we're going to hear God's verdict. And in verse 11, we receive the sentencing. Charges, verdict, and sentencing. This is what we're going to see. Let's read this together. I'll be reading just verses 8 through 11 this morning. Uh, if you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Beginning in verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people... Blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. And Father, we do again pause, bowing before you, asking for your your loving help. We thank you for the spirit that is at work among us now as we sit as your people gather to hear from you and your word. Thank you for your word. Without it, we perish. We so need the food that your word represents to us, and we thank you, Lord, that you've not left us hungry. You feed us even now. Lord, help us to receive it with open ears, with open hearts. And we thank you, Lord, for the goodness that it represents to us. That you so love us. You are so committed to our sanctification, to our glorification in the end. That you engage in all manner of means to bring that sure day about. We thank you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verses 8 and 9 is where we find a specific set of charges. And the charge here is this. These men, you notice that he's going to speak of the false teachers in their midst in that way. These, these men. These men are the men of verse 4. These men have proven their own guilt by being just like the three examples that we have been studying in verses 5 through 7 before this. 
It's really, this morning, it's an argument of precedent. God has proven in the past his stance with these past examples. And the statements we're going to find this morning show us that the defendants in the courtroom are just like them. You can hear that argument uh, in how he opens verse 8. He says, yet in like manner. Yet. Even given that these examples have happened, in spite of the clear examples like these, God has not been unclear in the past about how he regards this form of rebellion against him and against his truth. But in spite of these clear examples, where he has made his will evident, these people act in like manner. And they act in like manner uh, in these three ways. The first thing that they do in like manner is that they defile the flesh. Given the way that he words this, it's very clear that this is a reference to sexual sin. You can tell throughout the letter that there's something of an ungodly sexual nature to these false teachers. 2 Peter 2.13 will say of this sort that they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. There's a boldness to the way that they behave. And we know why, at least we have a sense of why, they are so brazen about their sin. Verse 4 told us they think they're doing these things in the open as a celebration of the grace of God. That's the pretense that they're acting upon. In spite of the clear examples that God has given us of what comes for those on such a path, despite that, nevertheless, these people likewise, they likewise defile the flesh. This is a theme that is not going to stop here. We're going to continue to see this sort of emphasis on defiling uh, characteristics, defiling behavior. This is the first charge that he levels against them, that in like manner they defile the flesh. They also, likewise, reject authority. We read in verse 6 of angels who would not accept their own position of authority. You remember that? Likewise, these people reject authority. It will be said of them elsewhere in a description, it will call these men self-willed. These are self-willed men. What is a self-willed person? What's a self-willed person like? Or what is, what is it like to try to instruct a self-willed person? What's it like to try to bring counsel to a self-willed person? Have you ever slammed your head into a wall really hard? A self-willed person is unteachable, isn't he? Unteachable. The, the, the Bible, if you ever have an idea in your mind... Uh, the, the way that we put things, the Bible always seems to find more eloquent, more persuasive ways to say things, doesn't it? Listen to what it says in Proverbs twenty six twelve. It says, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? You know how that ends? Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. If you know the book of Proverbs, you know that there's no hope for a fool in the book of Proverbs. This is not a statement of hope. At least there's more hope for him. There is no hope for a fool. But there's more hope for a fool than for a man who is wise in his own eyes. 
You might say then that the man who is wise in his own eyes is the greatest of fools. Is the greatest of fools. Now, what is the opposite of being wise in my own eyes? There are a lot of false versions uh, of, uh, of the alternative to that. Is it the sort of self-focused false pride that downplays the reality of God's gifting, for example, or that thinks that they must never speak with certainty on anything? If I speak with certainty, then I must be wise in my own eyes. Is that the opposite of being wise in my own eyes? And the answer to that is a resounding no in Scripture. We have to keep the Proverbs with us. What is the beginning of wisdom according to the Bible? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And it is the beginning of genuine wisdom. We find encouragements like Jeremiah 9, 23. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, or the strong man in his strength, or the rich man in his riches. But let the one who boasts, boast in this, that he knows and fears me. Let him boast in that. He has pursued me. I do not hide myself from those that seek me. He has pursued me and he has found me. And what he has found terrifies him with a holy, reverent awe. What he has found amazes him. Let the one who boasts boast that he knows me and he fears me. That's what we're to boast in. In other words, true wisdom, what really is the opposite of being wise in my own eyes, is the wisdom to take God at his word and to take his word as a hill worthy of dying on. That's wisdom. Now think of what it takes to engage with God's word in that way. It requires that one see it for what it is, the very word of God. It requires that one bow trembling before his word. How often does the Bible speak positively about those who tremble at the word of God? It, it requires that we see his word as that which, which stands over us in authority, true loving authority. And what is the accusation being leveled here? They reject authority. That's what they do. I once heard a man for whom I have great respect, and I've never forgotten this, um, this way of describing this. He said, where you see a disregard and a disrespect for authority, at best what you have is extreme spiritual immaturity. At worst, what you have is ungodliness. Because mature saints are those who are the most mindful of matters of authority. He is exactly right about that. The Bible does not describe the children of God as a people who raise their backs, who buck against the authority that God has put in place because a child of God has been humbled by God. And so this second charge, they reject authority. There is a third charge coming as well, and it will be a separate charge of its own, but it really stems from the same branch. If you see the arrogance at the root of this life that he is describing in these verses, as these people walk around unteachable and bold in their self-willed, despising posture toward the authorities that God has established, the authoritative boundaries that God has established. If you see the arrogance at root in all of that, then you're already prepared 
to hear the third charge that comes in verse 8. That these are men who blaspheme the glorious ones. In other words, what they're doing is they are speaking critically and authoritatively against angelic beings. And in fact, it seems clear that the ones that they are speaking against like this aren't just angels in general, but they're actually fallen angels. I say this because of what's described in 2 Peter 2. We'll look at that in a moment. But also the example that follows uh, here immediately in verse 9. Look at verse 9 uh, as he gives the counterexample. This is, verse 8 is what they have failed to do. This is what they have, uh, they have rebelled in. They have um, blasphemed the glorious ones. And by contrast, here's what they should have done. Verse 9, but when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, what, I think what, what can trip us up here is the use of the word blaspheme. If this is speaking of unholy fallen angels, how do you blaspheme them? Uh, how could you say something inappropriate about them? Aren't they... I mean, they are rebels against God. They are his enemies. Um, And all that this requires is that we understand what he's meaning in this accusation, that they are blaspheming these angels. Uh, We can understand the inappropriate things that they are probably doing. Uh, There's a couple of examples that I would give to you. Here's the first one. If I go into an art museum, let's say, um, I'm probably, I may walk up, and discover a piece of art that I don't care for. Uh, and if I start criticizing it with my mouth, and an art expert is standing right beside me, if they're polite, they may not say anything. Uh, but I can tell you what they're going to be thinking. This guy doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't know how to, the criteria here. He doesn't understand what this artist is trying to do. He's spouting about the things he doesn't like as if he knows what he's talking about. He doesn't have the first clue of what he's talking about. I imagine if I was watching a soccer game with chance, we'd have a similar sort of situation. I might complain about what one of the teams is doing, but the words coming out of my mouth would make clear, I don't know what I'm talking about. Now, what if that team is really doing a bad job? What if that piece of art really is bad? That's not the point, is it? The problem there isn't that the team was doing a bad job or that the art was poor. Maybe they were. Maybe I'm right in my stance against them, but I don't know what I'm talking about. And so there's a problem there. Another example might be this. This is a way that they are are sinning here in this verse uh, that has a bit of a different spin on it. Let's say you have two, two, two children at home, two boys, 12 and 7, all right? I don't have any 12 or 7-year-olds at home, so this is, this is not an example personal to me. This is a hypothetical. Mine are different ages. Let's say you have two boys, all right, 12 and 7. The 7-year-old the does something disobedient, just blatantly, okay? We're all there together. Those people are all there together, and the 7-year-old does something disobedient. And that 12-year-old goes over and just takes care of business, brings them through the ringer, all right? What's the problem with that? Did that seven-year-old do something wrong? Did they do something deserving of discipline? Yes. What's the problem with what the 12-year-old did? It wasn't his place. 
He's out of bounds. You, so you get on to that 12-year-old, because, not because the 7-year-old was innocent, but because the 12-year-old grabbed at authority that wasn't his. He's out of his element. He's out of place. That authority rests on the parent in that situation. So the question that we asked was, how can you say, how can you blaspheme demons in a way that Michael managed to avoid, but these men have engaged in? And I think we're seeing the answer. Regardless of whatever these teachers may have been saying, they are at fault because they're speaking about things about which they are totally ignorant. And they're speaking words they have no authority to speak. That's true regardless of what they were saying. But based on the example of verse 9, it would suggest to us that we may have an idea of what they were saying. It seems very likely that these were men who thought that they could rebuke demons. That they had the authority and power to speak words of rebuke against demons. You might look in your handout at the second Peter column in your bulletin, verses 10 and 11. Middle of verse 10, it starts like this. It's describing the same situation, but notice what Peter emphasizes about their fault. He says they're bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. You see the distinction that's made? These angels, and Jude gives one example of Michael specifically, they're greater in might and power. Not even they will pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. And isn't that what Jude is emphasizing? His whole point is, while Satan was wrong, what did Michael do? He refused to take that on to himself. And he said, the Lord rebuke you. And yet these men of their time, just like Peter describes, they do not even tremble as they feel themselves worthy to speak with authoritative rebuke in these contexts, to rebuke demons. Do we see that happening in our day? It's amazing to me how consistently the struggles, the failings that we find spoken of in Scripture, they're still there up to this day. I mean, the same it must have been maybe two months ago. I, you remember when the news came out of Alex Trebek and his cancer diagnosis. I learned of that on a, a, a news outlet online. They had a video of Alex Trebek talking about this, that, that what, it, what the diagnosis was and what he was going to do. And underneath the video, there were comments, lots of comments. I was amazed as I scrolled down there. Uh, I mean, I think I saw six different ones by different people, all caps, of course, Spirit of sickness, I rebuke you. I command you to leave that man. Have you ever seen that sort of thing? Heard people speak like that? I rebuke you. Get out. No trembling. You can see from the caps. Compare that with the example that we see here in verse 9. Even Michael the archangel would not take that rebuke into his mouth but instead said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, friends, that is not a semantics issue. That's not a splitting hairs. That is an authority issue. Michael was intentionally guarding his proper place. He knew where he had authority and where he did not have authority, and he would not speak out of the authority 
uh, that he had been given. And I hope you can tell from the way that was worded that certainly, no, this doesn't mean either that we should never pronounce any judgments of any kind. It doesn't mean that. Why? Because we have been given commands to judge in context as well. 1 Corinthians 5.12 commands us to judge within the church. Matthew 18 commands us to hold one another accountable within the church. And even to an extent outside of the church, we are ambassadors of Christ, aren't we? We go out as his ambassadors, and when, he's, when we say what he tells us to, which is be reconciled to God, well, what are we saying to people? We're telling them that they are not reconciled to God. There are inevitable judgments that must be spoken. The point here is not that all judgment is wrong. The point is that we are to know our place. We must know what authority we have been granted, and we must be content with those boundaries. Anything more is arrogance. Now, are you hearing in this letter why we should be so concerned as we find arrogance within us? Arrogance before the Lord, arrogance before the authorities that He has established, arrogance before the Word of God, These are things that when we find them in ourselves, they should be very frightful to see. Things that we should remorse about and repent of. But for these men, there is no remorse. There is no trembling. There is only bold and willful activity along these ends. And within the church. Now here's a question for you. How did they get there? How do you get to a place where you think that you can live like this, and out in the open, so that you even see yourself as having the the approval of God in these things. How can you get to that place? Defiling the flesh in the face of God's grace, rejecting his authority, thinking you can speak rebuke to angels. You may have noticed we've skipped over a statement at the beginning of our passage in verse 8. There's a statement made that explains where they're coming from in all three of these departures, defiling the flesh, rejecting authority, and blaspheming. How are they doing these things? They're doing these things, all of them, relying on their dreams. That's what they're doing. These are men who are claiming to be receiving new revelation from God through their dreams. In other words... God's word is not enough for me to live by, or teach by, or think by. God has more thoughts than what he handed down to us from the apostles and prophets. Do you remember, verse 3, that this is what we are being commanded to pursue, to contend earnestly for, in opposition to all of what we're reading. Contend for the once for all delivered to the saints' faith. That's the alternative. These men won't content themselves with what God has handed down once for all. Instead, they will rely on their subjective experience. When we were pointed in that verse to uh, the once for all delivered to the saints' faith, he was speaking in reference to apostolic testimony. 2 Peter 1.21 says of this that men, who, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that's a once for all Phenomenon that God has done and gifted to the church. 
Hebrews 1.1 makes clear that God has spoken to man in many ways through the ages, but in these last days of which we belong, He has spoken to us in His Son. And it speaks of the revelation concerning His Son in a completed manner. When men rely on something besides that, on something other than the revealed Word of God, there is only one place that's going to take them, and it's arrogance. Arrogance before God. It's what Peter emphasized about these men, as we've seen. They do not tremble. People like this have no sense of their place before God. And as a result, they have no proper sense of their place with his people, and they very much have no sense of the Bible's place over them. They have no sense. Because they're living in a dream world. And at this point, verse 10 comes in and declares the judge's verdict. What is the truth of the matter? When the deeds of these men have been entered into evidence, what is the truth about them? And we see it in verse 10. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. The things that they're speaking about so inappropriately and with such confidence They're things that they don't know the first thing about. They don't know what they're talking about. There are some things that they do know. And in the end, all that they end up knowing about truly is what is portrayed here as an animal existence. An animal existence. You see it in the way that Peter describes these men in in verse 12 on your handout. Look at what he says there. But these... Like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. You see those descriptions? They're behaving like irrational animals. They're behaving like creatures of instinct. Another way to express that distinction is to say that when they try to speak about spiritual matters... Their words become slanderous because they are speaking about things they have no personal knowledge of at all. They know nothing about spiritual things. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. They are simply displaying the inevitable differences between those who know God and have been known by God. And those who will say to him on the last day, Lord, Lord, and he will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. There are real, inevitable differences between the two. The things that they do know, they know by instinct. Their whole lives are run by natural and fleshly instinct, like unreasoning animals. Imagine two dogs, right? I am 100% in not giving you any cat illustrations. I'm going to stick with that commitment to you as love, all right? Two dogs. The first dog has learned to trust a human master. The first dog has learned to respond to commands, right? The second dog has been proven to be completely unteachable. never grows beyond the basic instinctual urges and reactions then to the situations around them. What is the outcome for that second dog? 
There may be some patience, depending on the owner. But when that's the path that is persisted, what's the end of that path for that dog? There's nothing left for him, except what Peter says is left in chapter 2, verse 12. There's nothing left but to be caught and destroyed. That's what Peter says of them. They were born to be caught and destroyed. I wonder if it makes you think again about the wilderness generation of the Israelites that we saw a few weeks ago. So much training, so much revelation of the character of God. So many reasons to grow and to trust Him, but they would not. And to this day, the Lord holds them up as examples of what hard-heartedness looks like. And not just what it looks like, but where it ends. Every time, where it ends. In the end, the very thing that they live by, the very things that they understand, are the things that destroy them. That's what he says here in verse 10. They are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. It's a tragic situation. And in particular, when we think that these are, this is description of images of God, Men and women created to serve their creator. Born to know him, to have fellowship with him, to trust him. And they will not. God has made to us many promises in his word, bold promises. Like, come to me. Like all those who come to me, I will never turn one away who comes to me in Christ. It is not for a lack of willingness. These are hard-hearted Arrogant people. And there's only one end to that path. Now look with me at verse 11. Because we see there, that's all that's left for them in our passage. All that's left for them is the sentencing. And there should be no surprise at what we find. Because it's the sentence that was received by every rebellious creature of the past who refused to come humbly before the Lord who offers a Redeemer. It's the sentence, woe to them. Woe to them. This is a word that conveys the displeasure and anger of God. And when it represents the sentiment like that of the one who's sitting on the throne in God's courtroom, we know there is no appeals process for this sort of condemnation on the last day. Our passage this morning ends... Um, as Jude gives us another set of threes. Do you see that? He likes threes. There's going to be more triplets going through this letter. He gives us three examples of why God's displeasure rests on them. First is this, for they walked in the way of Cain. Do you remember Cain when he murdered his brother? But what's being pointed to here is not the murder itself. Do you remember what came before the murder? Do you remember that God spoke to Cain? And warned him. Genesis 4, 6, and 7. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. He received true warning from God and Cain would have nothing of it. The very next verse goes into the story of the premeditated murder of Abel. This reminds us of why we call these men apostates. We talked about that word last week. These men have had truth revealed to them by God. 
just like Cain. And just like Cain, they think they can ignore it with no consequences. They have walked in the way of Cain. Secondly, they have abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Balaam is quite a figure in the Old Testament. Jesus speaks about him in Revelation 2.14. You want Jesus to use you as an example? Depends on what he's making an example of, right? Jesus said of Balaam that he, quote, taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Balaam became a false teacher, even like this, leading the people into sexual immorality. And why did he do it? He did it for the sake of gain, it says. He liked what it gave him. We all know that sin often brings temporal gain, doesn't it? It brings tangible gain. It brings pleasure. It brings reward. And if one is blind to spiritual realities, we'll never be able to see past those things. What exists past those things, past the temporal pleasures and gains of of sin? Is it not the warnings and promises of God that stand in conflict with them? They walked in the way of Cain. They abandoned themselves to Balaam's error. Third, they perished in Korah's rebellion. This is a reference to Numbers chapter 16. There were a lot of things wrong with the scenario in Numbers chapter 16. Uh, Korah is one of the Levites. He starts a rebellion, and it says that he gathered 250 chiefs of the congregation. This is a major rebellion against Moses and Aaron. The fact that Jude specifies Korah's rebellion here tells us what he's focusing on. He is focusing on Korah's opposition to the leadership that God had set in place. That was the entire source of the conflict. Korah, Korah said to Moses, why do you exalt yourselves above us? Challenging the authority that God had established. You remember how that ended? Did the Lord know how to keep under punishment until the judgment, especially such men who despised authority? Numbers 16.24, the Lord spoke to the congregation saying, Get back from around the dwellings. Of Korah, Datham, and Abiram. Verse 31, as he finished speaking all these words, the ground that was under them split open, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, and their households, and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. Did the Lord know how to keep under punishment such men? It makes us wonder how many examples we think we need when every example that has ever been seen has proven the same thing. So in Jude 11, we have three more examples, really, of the consistency of God's courtroom. I wonder if you notice that those three examples are out of order, chronologically. Jude wants to end with Korah. We're supposed to imagine this process, and he even helps us with the words he chooses The verbs, walking, falling headlong, and finally perishing 
in Korah's rebellion. Almost as it were imagining a people on a long path, not a path that began when the ground opened up, a long path of hard-heartedness and arrogant stubbornness, a path that led to the place where they fell headlong into the ground, opened for them. The path that forsakes the light of God's word only ever leads there. Now, I would close this this morning by backing up a little bit because this has been a heavy passage. We've had a morning, really a couple of mornings, uh, of rebellion and judgment, that being our focus. Is that right of us? Should we be focusing there as a group of gathered believers who have been saved by the blood of Christ, for whom there is no condemnation? Should we be focusing on judgment like this? We just sang the song, one of my favorite songs, He Will Hold Me Fast. Why should we focus on these warnings? Well, we need to remember two truths here. The first is that we focus here this morning because our passage focuses here this morning. We must always be a people who are willing to go where the Lord takes us in His Word. All of it is needed, or else it wouldn't be in there. And it's needed for his people, or else it wouldn't be in there. The second truth is this, that we're seeing more and more why we emphasized what we did in verse 1, if you were here for that. We emphasized that he is writing to the called. He's writing to those who are safely loved and kept by God. He is writing these warnings and these reminders to Christians. If your faith is in the person and work of Christ this morning, you need to know you are safe in the hands of God. No condemnation awaits you unless what Jesus paid on the cross was not enough. But may we never say such a thing. You're safe in the hands of God. The question is, why? Why are you safe? You're safe because God is committed to your sanctification. He has promised that he will protect you to the end. That's why you're safe. Because he has promised that. Because he is doing that. When a good father rides bikes with his daughter and his daughter starts to go out into the street. And she hears her father cry out, Stop! He sees what she doesn't see. Stop! She doesn't think to herself, My dad has promised to take care of me. Nothing's going to hurt me. And keep going. No, she hears the voice of her father. And that voice of warning serves as an extension of his love to her. And effectively rescues that little girl and keeps her safe. If you belong to Jesus this morning, when you hear these warnings, when you hear these wretched examples, you're hearing the voice of your father. And if you were about to ride out in the street this week, you stop. Because you heard him. You heard the urgency in these things. And I hope that when we think of it like that, we can understand why as gospel-believing Christians living under the grace of God, we, we could study hard passages like these and feel the way we feel and come out with songs of praise in our hearts. 
That is what befits a child of God this morning, to hear these terrible, terrifying things and come away saying, God, thank you. Because I know that one of the ways you are protecting me is by warning me of the real dangers that exist in this life and in this world. And I hear you. Thank you, Father. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we do thank you. We thank you for what you have revealed to us concerning yourself, concerning our future. We know that if we are united to Christ, there is no fear in death. There is no fear of judgment. You have broken You've broken that power in our lives. You have rescued us and transferred us into the the gracious kingdom of Christ, and we thank you. Lord, we know that you did not rescue us, save us, and then pluck us up to be with you in heaven that very day. We know that your plans are many, and that you intend to work through our lives, teaching us, putting yourself on display. But we thank you, Lord, for the powerful promise you give us, that although we will face many trials, Jesus has overcome the world, and you have given us faith And it is by our faith that we overcome the world. Lord, help us to hold fast to you in faith. Help us to to hear your voice as you warn us. Help us to hear your voice as you promise good things to us. And help us to pursue your righteous kingdom in every way that you give us the honor. And we thank you for them all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand with me for our benediction? which will come from the end of Jude, Jude 24 and 25, which says this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. We are dismissed.